eternal kingdom. This was a high, high point for David and, and for his life and, and for his relationship with God. And I am moving ahead a couple of chapters, and I'll explain that in a minute. Um, but we have to realize that at the beginning of this passage that we'll study today, David would, was at a high point. He was living in peace. He was having victory in his life. Um, David, um, at the beginning of this passage, he's actually sending men, expecting victory. He's sending men to answer an insult that was paid um, to Israel about a year ago by the Ammonites. Um, so it is a, um, it's like waiting for the next good news, waiting for the next good news. Now, probably we've been in cycles where we've been waiting for the next bad news in our lives. But David, because of all the victory, because of all the success, because of the blessing of God... You're waiting on the next good news. You're waiting on the next thing that is going to just be, you know, another superlative in the life and in, 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 the, in the character of David. But unfortunately, the focus of this passage, although it starts off as a, as a summary of, of war and what was going on, war is not the focus. Instead, the, the focus is a devastating series of sins um, that are committed by David. Um, I would say that this may be the saddest passage in the Old Testament after the fall um, because we had every reason to believe that David would never do anything like this. What we're about to read today um, it, it comes so far just out of left field. We're not expecting for David to take this kind of fall. We're not expected for David to take these actions. It is very difficult, very difficult for us to accept what is, is, is happening um, right in front of us. Um, the sermon in a sentence is this. When we open the door to sin in our lives, it builds upon itself until we become unrecognizable. And that is the um, kind of the word that kept bouncing around in my head as I, as I studied this passage, it's unrecognizable. Because David was one person and, and, and one thing and had one reputation. And then in this chapter and the events that, that unfold, he does not look anything like he has looked. He, is not, he does not seem to be the same man that had done all these other things. And so we need to take this as a very powerful and stark warning uh, as, as we read this passage. So I'm going to read you the whole chapter. It's um, 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1 through 27. Um, and as we look at this, it is, it's okay to sit in shock as you read this because this is the same David that we have just been reading about that was... Um, he, he conquered Goliath in the name of the Lord. He was faithful in everything concerning Saul. He was, you know, the conquering king that came and took Jerusalem. He is all of those things. He is the man that received the promise of God that he would have an eternal kingdom. And, and here we start in chapter 11 with a whole different kind of story. And so here we go. Uh, First Samuel chapter, or 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1 through 27. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman uh, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Elam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. 
Then she returned to her house. And the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to David, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out from, of the king's house and there uh, followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths. That could also be translated tents. And my lord Joab and the, the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in, the, in his presence and drank so that he made him drunk. And in the evening, he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter, he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting. And he instructed the messenger, When you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger rises, and if he says to you, Why did you go so near the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubbethseth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall, so that he died at Thebes. Why did you go so near the wall that you shall say, uh, why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, the men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it, and encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah her husband was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, 
David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. So, as we look at this, what we're going to see, I, I think we're going to break it up into three parts. One, we're going to talk about sin considered. That's where David is first, as he considers this horrible sin. It, it, it's shocking to just read it in its totality, to look at what David decides to do. But let's look at it in little pieces as David kind of takes this step from, from king, from the mountaintop, down into the valley. Um, the covenant that God made with David, the one that we covered in the last uh, sermon, after that point, or maybe before that point, but before this point for sure, um, God gave David great victories against the Philistines, against Moab, um, against uh, Zobah, against Edom. Um, David, even in, in, in another chapter, he discovers that there's still a son of Jonathan that's alive. This young man's a cripple, but David brings this young man into his house and um, allows him to eat every day at the king's table. In other words, he's providing for him in every way. And so another really great charitable thing that David does to show that, that, that he, is, um, he is doing what's right, not necessarily what might be the best in his own favor. Um, then the king of the Ammonites dies. Uh, and the king of the Ammonites had, had treated David favorably and had been loyal to him. And so David sends an envoy of men to uh, the, the new king of the Ammonites, basically to tell them, we've had good relations, everything has been good, and that's going to continue. But this new king, he's a young guy, and he listens to his advisors who say that these, this, these people of this envoy, they're really spies, and David's just trying to gauge our strength. And so what this king does is he disgraces the, the envoy that David sends. And so they shave half of their beards off, um, they rip their clothes open down to their waist, and they send them out in the public. And so these men were shamed. Um, and, and so David actually lets them stay away from, from Jerusalem until their beards grow back and, and, and all of that. But, but he files that away as an as a insult. And so that year, he actually goes, he sends his men out, and they fight against the Ammonites. Well, the Ammonites actually call on help from the Syrians, um, and, and basically, David's men are, are pinched between the two, the Ammonites and the Syrians, but God gives them strength and they eventually crush both enemies. The Syrians are afraid to help the Ammonites anymore, and the Ammonites retreat to the, to the walled city of Rabbah, the one that we read about in this particular passage. So, David's achieved victory on all sides. Um, he is at rest. He is at peace. Things are going very, very well. In fact, he is... He is receiving tribute or like a, a toll or a tax on all these countries of people that he's defeated. He's receiving money from them. So while he's having victories and receiving tribute, he's just getting stronger. Like his kingdom is getting more powerful. They have better weapons. They have more men. Everything is going good for, for Israel. He is, he is reaching a pinnacle that, that Israel would never see again each passing year. It just seems to get better. You know, and up to this point, we've only seen high character moves from David and deep spiritual maturity in, in everything that he's done. He has taken the high road. He has been, you know, anchored to what God would have him do. Even when he makes a slight mistake or does something wrong, as soon as he has an opportunity, he corrects this. Like, he has shown us through his actions and everything that's been recorded so far that he is the kind of king that you expect to see uh, living in Israel. 
So David was in the middle of both uh, God's will and his blessing before these events that we're about to read uh, occur. So everything is right. Everything is going good for David uh, until this event begins to happen. So scripture tells us that this starts in the spring of the year when the kings go out for battle. And that would be very understandable. Um, in the Middle East, if they're going to have rainstorms, they're going to happen in winter, like late winter. And so early spring or springtime is, is when the weather would have been favorable for people to go out and to travel. And so it would have been a good time for kings to go out to war, to lead their, their troops out for war. Because David knows that he's going to invade uh, the Ammonites and, and, and repay the insult that they paid to him last year, he knows that he's going to be, like his army is going to be traveling in foreign land, so it's a great time to go because the wheat and the barley are actually ripening in that, at that time, and so he's able to feed his army based on the, 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 the fields of the Ammonites instead of feeding them off of his own field. So it's a good time to go and to fight. It's also a significant time because it marks the one-year anniversary of the insult that the Amazite, Ammonite king paid to his people, and so it is, a, uh, it is an appropriate time, and, and, and it's very clear that, that everything that David is doing at this time, it's, it's normal. It, it, everything makes sense, I guess is what I'm saying. It's, it's, not, a, it's not unusual. There's, there's nothing unusual that happens in verse 1. In fact, even David saying in Jerusalem is not a, uh, a dereliction of his duty. He's not supposed to go and lead his armies into battle. In fact, um, there are times where his men ask him to take a less active role in military campaigns for his own safety and for the betterment of the nation. If you lose a soldier, you get another soldier. If you lose a king, you lose a significant thing in your kingdom. And so David was not necessarily supposed to be in the heat of battle. Um, that was not supposed to be where he was. And so he wasn't doing anything wrong when we look at verse 1, where essentially he remains in Jerusalem. Things do change uh, when, when we start reading in verse 2. So late one afternoon, it doesn't have to be a specific afternoon that, that it says it's just late one afternoon. You would imagine that it was before dark, but later in the afternoon, David had been resting on his couch. Well, houses um, during those days could get a little stuffy, and so most likely David went up on his roof to walk and to catch the breeze and, and just, to, just to enjoy the evening. Well, the fact is, David's house was, was high up in the city of Jerusalem, so he would have had a commanding view of pretty much the, the rest of the town, uh, and it would have made it very easy uh, for him to see Bathsheba on that fateful day. So David ultimately sees something that he should have ignored, but he chose to consider it. That doesn't sound like that ominous of a word, does it? To consider something. We consider things all the time. That doesn't sound scary. That doesn't sound bad. That doesn't sound troubling. Um, but consider is where this all starts. So before I go any further, I do want to point out that up to this point, neither David nor Bathsheba had done anything wrong. It's likely that David went up to his roof nearly every day in the cool of the evening to catch that breeze and to just, that would have been a place. People use their roofs both as living space and they used it as a workspace from time to time. The roof was part of the house that you used in, in the Middle East. And so they would have been flat roofs. They would have probably had benches or chairs or furniture of some variety up there. That was a common thing. Um, and, and so David was not doing anything wrong by being on his roof. Bathsheba was not doing anything wrong by being on her roof and bathing. It may be that that was where she bathed always, 
Um, the other option for a person to, to bathe, because remember, I mean, the architecture was different, the world was different. Most houses would have been built with a courtyard in the middle. She might would have bathed in the courtyard in the middle, but from David's high position, that wouldn't have made any difference. He would have still seen her at that point. So she wasn't doing anything wrong. Times were different. I mean, water in a house was not necessarily a super common thing. A lot of times, baths happened at the well. Baths were a public thing. And so there's nothing that Bathsheba is doing wrong here. There is nothing that David is doing wrong here. And I think that's very important um, for, for us to point out before we go forward. Evil doesn't enter into this story really until David begins to consider Bathsheba as a beautiful and desirable person. That's when things change. And it's not just that he recognized her beauty. We look at a mountain, we say, that's a pretty mountain. That's not sinful. Um, and, and, and if you look at a person, you say, that's a beautiful person. That's not sinful. But what David did was he began to consider her in a way that he shouldn't have considered her. It's where lust actually begins. And that's what happened. That's where evil enters into this story is when David began to consider her in a lustful way. That's when things change. Now, David's fall is so sudden and so surprising that we've got to look at every little step of this and see just how it happened and, and what, what maybe he could have done. There are so many Old Testament passages, and David wrote a bunch of them, that tell us to, to, to dwell on the Word of God, to remember God, um, to dwell on His Word always. David even tells us that in the Psalms. We see that, that, that David learned... To, to do this and learn to, to have this as part of his life through experience of not dwelling on the Word of God. Had he been uh, dwelling on the Word of God at this particular time, he probably would not have made this mistake. So I'm going to try to point out several times where David could have gotten off of this spiraling snowball, if you want to call it, of sin. This was the first part. When David had that bad thought, when he looked at her and he had a bad thought, it was not just that's a beautiful human being that God's created, but, but no, he, he looked at her in a lustful way. That was the first moment that he could have stopped. He could have been dwelling on the Lord. He could have been, you know, thinking about the word of God. And, and he, could have, he could have got off right then and said, you know what? Nope, I'm not part of this. That I, I had a bad thought. I'm going to go back in my house and I'm going to sweat tonight or whatever. He's just not going to be where he can be to see her anymore. He could have made that choice at that time. That's not the choice he made, but this is definitely the first point um, that, that he could have basically changed things. If he had controlled his thinking at this point, uh, we probably would have had a wonderfully boring chapter where David is sitting in Jerusalem waiting on a report from a battle. That's what we would have been doing, is waiting to, to see when the Ammonite city actually fell. But that's not what this passage is about. Now, I believe that most Christians don't think about their mind as the initial battleground for sin. But I tell you that if we don't guard our minds, then, then our words and our actions are going to begin to change. We have to watch what we're thinking most of all. Where, where, where does sin start? Usually with a thought, right? That's what David had. David had a thought. And, and then it snowballed into what it was. How does our sin start? Normally with something that we think, right? Something that we think, I could get away with this. Or if, if, if your sin might be, you know, anger at somebody, it, it starts by taking offense to something and thinking about that and dwelling on it and, and, and letting that live in your life. So whatever, whatever sin we might have, it's going to start with a thought. It's going to start with one thing, and then that's going to snowball into something that becomes deadly and devastating. Um, 
I want you to notice the power of David's consideration. It's so great that he almost immediately acts to learn more about um, the object of his desire. He considered it, and then it's like he immediately starts asking messengers, who's this woman? Who is this person? What can I learn about her? Go find out what I can learn about her. So David's consideration develops into inquiries uh, as he draws ever closer to the dangers of sin. So at this point, now he's trying to find out who is this woman? Is this, is this woman available? Is this woman... And I don't even know if he was asking that question. He may have just been trying to identify her. Maybe she looked familiar. We'll talk about that in a minute. But he's trying to identify her for who she is. So it's not necessarily sinful for David to recognize Bathsheba's beauty, uh, but it does begin to be sinful when he's actually inquiring about her. At that point, he's gaining more information so that he can take action. That's definitely the time that it is sinful in his life. So it turns out that Bathsheba would not have been a stranger to David at all. In fact, she's the daughter of one of David's best fighters, the granddaughter of one of his most trusted counselors, and the wife of um, one of his inner circle of honored soldiers. So both Elam and Uriah the Hittite were part of something um, that's, that we find later in 2 Samuel. They're described as the 30. So there are 30 men, and it's actually 37, uh, but they're called the 30. 37 men that are part of an elite fighting group. Uh, Bathsheba's father is, is, is one member, and, and Uriah is another member of this group. David would have known these men. And, and here's the thing that you've got to realize is that David and his men had won a bunch of battles. I mean, we're not, we're not talking about dozens. We're probably talking about over a hundred battles that these men had been in. They had fought. They were grizzled veterans. They were, they were the best of the best. They knew what they were doing. And, and, and with all of these things, you might say, well, God gave them these victories. Yes, he gave them these victories, but he probably also gave them the skill to win these victories. And so these would have been very significant men. These would have not been fragile men at all. And so if David had have thought about these men for just a moment, he might have said, you know what? I'm not going to transgress against these men. But that's not what he did. Um, The way it works out where we're introduced to Elam as the member of the 30, we're also told who his father is. His father is an advisor to David. Um, and, and when this story goes really sideways way later and we've got Absalom trying to run David around the kingdom, um, Absalom actually goes to this, this grandfather of Bathsheba to get advice. It's, it's this really weird, weird thing that happens. But what we have to understand in all of this is that Bathsheba was not unknown to David. She certainly was not an easy target to David. She was not somebody where an affair with her was going to have no consequences she was connected in David's kingdom in many different ways. Um, she was not just an insignificant person. Um, the, la- the last little fact that she was the wife of Uriah the Hittite, one of the 30, that was enough for David to understand that this was a married woman. And so any thoughts that he had about her after that means that he had already decided to commit adultery with her in his heart. This is adultery with another man's wife. And remember, Jesus said that if you look on a woman with lust in your eyes, you have already committed adultery with her in your heart. And so David had already made this decision. He had already decided to do this. So this would have been another point in which David could have stopped his reckless actions. He saw her. He lusted after her. He gained more information about her. But the information he gained about her was that 
this woman is, is tied into men that are very important in my kingdom, very significant men that have sacrificed a lot for my kingdom. I don't need to transgress in this way. That would have been another time to kind of step off the, the rolling snowball so that he didn't reach a, a cliff where everything fall, fell to pieces. But David did not make that choice. In, in other words, he, he could have, at that point, Ration could have jumped in and said, you know what, I shouldn't. But he didn't. He, di he didn't. We can't explain that. But, you know, we can probably all identify with the fact that one bad choice leads to another bad choice leads to another bad choice. And he wasn't at that rock bottom yet. And so he wasn't seeing the mistake in his ways. He wasn't even seeing the very obvious obstacles that should have been in his way. He was just simply going after what he wanted in that moment. And so he could have changed. But let me explain something that, that I know I have explained before, but, but, it's, but it's important. If temptation takes us by surprise, we will almost always fall to it. You have to be prepared. So David would have had to decide in his heart at some time in the past, I will not commit adultery with another man's wife. He would have had to, in his mind, say, I will never do that. I will resolutely keep this commandment of the Lord. He would have had to been there at some point. He would have had to decide, you know what, I'm not going to be that guy. I'm not going to do that. Did David make commitments to the Lord? Absolutely. Was, was David familiar with the word of the Lord? It does seem so. David wrote a healthy portion of the, the Old Testament himself. David knew God, but he had never committed in his heart that he would never break that command. And because he had never committed in his heart that he would never break that command, when the opportunity arose, he broke that command. He definitely did what he was not supposed to do in that case. So here's, here's my prayer for each of us. That in this moment, we would, we would make a resolution in our heart. I'm not talking about a New Year's resolution. I'm talking about a resolution in our heart that we will not break the laws of God. Decide it now. No matter how difficult it might be, no, ma no matter how, how powerful the, the draw of temptation is, I will not break the laws of God. We've got to make that decision now when we're not in the moment of temptation. In the moment of temptation, we will fall. So my hope is that this sermon catches each of us before the great sin, uh, the, before the terrible, destructive thing that will happen. Uh, and we correct our thinking and build our biblical foundations before we fall to the same kind of trap that David did. So now let's look at where he actually commits the, the, the sin, where, where, where things begin to happen. So starting in verse 4, this is where everything begins to happen. David, he was so carried away by his lust and his desire for Bathsheba that he didn't care about the consequences because there are and would be consequences for this and so he just simply enters or desires to enter into this relationship with Bathsheba. Um, some of the chapters that we haven't preached through, but we've, we've kind of talked about, it reveals that David had at least six wives at this point. He also had concubines. This was not that David was in need and there was no way to meet that need. And, and sin really is almost never about need. It is always about a selfish desire. That's what David had was a selfish desire. He simply decides to take what he wants, even though he knows um, that he is committing a capital crime. The crime of adultery in Israel came with the death penalty. David, if he was going to be just, 
once he committed adultery with Bathsheba, he should have condemned him own self to be executed. That's what he should have been. So we can't overlook the fact that it's a capital crime. Uh, by bringing Bathsheba into his bed, he was condemning himself. Now, it, it is important for us at this point, I think, to talk about the fact that much has been made of this story, uh, especially lately, about whether or not Bathsheba uh, was willing in all of this or if she had... Uh, if this was some kind of rape situation. And so I will do this as simply and quickly as I can. Scripture does not record enough for us to know if Bathsheba was willing or if she was raped. It simply doesn't tell us that. The best practice in, in, in a case like that is just to take it at face value. What does it say? Let's take it the way that it is actually said. And so what we see here um, is that Bathsheba goes to David. That's all we really know. He, is, he sends for her, she goes to him. That's all we really know. Did she go kicking and screaming? We don't know. Did she go willingly? We don't know. It may be because I, I, would, I would guess based on everything that we see about her connections and relations that David and Bathsheba knew each other at least in passing. They had seen each other at least in passing and Bathsheba obviously would have known who David was. It's possible she had a personal affection for him or it's possible that she simply didn't have the will to stand up against her king. But either way, the point of this story is that David did something wrong. David committed a sin. We don't have to get so deep into this that we start getting into psychological arguments. David committed a sin. The next thing that we have to see is that the writer of this passage in no way puts blame on Bathsheba. She is not the one in the wrong in this passage. At, at, at least she obeys the command of a king. At most, she may have even resisted and fought and did everything that she could do. It, that's just not recorded in here. The point of this passage is that David did something wrong. David sinned. He failed. What he did displeased the Lord, and that's what we have to realize. That's the important thing that we have to see in this. So, David did this horrible thing. So, all sin has consequences. We know that. Um, and, and David's sin had a very predictable but complicated outcome. Um, what we see from the text is, is just, just the way that it says. Bathsheba was in the most likely time of her cycle to conceive and have a baby, and that's exactly what happened. That's what happens uh, with that kind of sin. And so now, th this would be a time. Now, again, the sin's already committed, but this would be another time that maybe David could say, you know what, it's time to come clean. You can't deny this. You can't deny that something happened here. Too many people know. There, there's too many obvious physical consequences. This would be the time maybe that David might say, you know what, I've, I've done this terrible thing. It would still lead to a national tragedy, but it would be the most honorable thing to do. But again, that's not what David does. Instead, he decides to recall Uriah from the battlefields and, and, and try to get Uriah to un, unknowingly cover David's sin for him. Now, what David wanted to know, how's Joab doing, how's the battle doing, how are the soldiers doing, what, what David wanted to know, any messenger could, could have told him. Now, it, it, it makes just a tiny bit of sense to call in a, a veteran because a veteran can tell you how the commander's doing. A veteran knows how the battle is going. A veteran knows what condition the soldiers are in. So maybe it makes a tiny bit of sense for Uriah, uh, but it probably could have been done through a messenger. So Uriah might have thought that there was something urgent. Who knows? But when Uriah shows up, David starts asking him these very kind of plain questions. And then he says, and I want you to go home. 
Um, I want you to, you know, wash your feet, and I'm sending a gift with you. Probably wine, food, that kind of thing. And so that's probably what happened. Well, Uriah does leave the presence of the king because he was told to leave the presence of the king, but he stays at the gate, or stays at the doors is the way it's translated. But he stays and sleeps where the king's servants would have stayed and slept. And so he goes nowhere near his house. And, and that's important because what happens is Uriah shows that he is an honorable man. So David finds out that Uriah did not go down to his house and he questions him about it. This would have actually been a pretty insulting line of questioning uh, because David had made it a rule in his army that soldiers didn't lie with their wives. They didn't have any kind of sexual contact while they were in battle because they wanted to be pure for the Lord. Fighting in God's army was a holy thing. Fighting in God's army was a service to God, and it was just like a priest, and the priest had to remain clean, and so David's soldiers were supposed to remain clean. And so Uriah would have seen this as just a, a total breach of his honor if he, had done, if he had went down to his house the way that David suggested. And so it may be that in his mind he was saying, is David testing me? Uh, is David trying to see if I will act without honor? Because I'm certainly not. And that's why he says, as you live, as your soul lives, I would not do this thing. And so David then decides, okay, I'm going to have to try a different way to get Uriah to do what I need him to do. And so he actually goes through the age-old, not complicated trick of getting him drunk and seeing if nature will take its course at that point. Now, it's actually possible that David got this strategy uh, from the book of Genesis. If you'll remember, here's what's interesting. In Genesis, we're told the story of Lot and his daughters, and they get him. They think they're the last humans on earth, so they get him drunk, they lay with him, and, and each of them creates a nation. Well, one of them creates the nation of the Ammonites. And, so, it, and, and that's who Uriah is currently fighting. That's who David is currently fighting. So it's just kind of ironic, and it may have nothing to do with it, but at the same time, it, it's just ironic to notice that and, and to see that connection there. So anyway... Um, David succeeds in getting Uriah drunk, but he does not succeed in getting Uriah to break his honor. He will not go down to his wife. He refuses to do that. So I would imagine, and honestly I would hope, that David has a terrible night. A night in which he has to decide, is the gig up? Am I going to have to confess? Or am I going to do something else to cover up my sin? Now we know that he chooses to do something else to cover up his sin. My hope is that this was not easy at this point. I hope that David struggled with this one in writing this letter. But in the letter is a simple command. Pick a fight with the Ammonites, and when the fighting is really difficult, back away and leave Uriah standing by himself. So that's what the command is. He gives Uriah the message. It would have been sealed, so Uriah wouldn't be able to read it. And Uriah is then sent to the front lines. Um, oh, by the way, I should have read you this one already. Uriah proved to be a man of unimpeachable honor uh, as he resists every effort of the king to assist in covering up his sin. So David dives into this level of corruption here. Um, as he uses his power to ensure Uriah dies and his sin can be covered. So Uriah delivers his own execution notice to Joab. All of these guys are veterans. All of these guys know the score when it comes to fighting. They know that once a city is surrounded and there's no, no resupply, there, there's, there's no means for escape, the best thing to do is just wait until the people get hungry or desperate and come out to fight you. That's the best thing. Don't go against the walls of a city. That's how you die. Um, but, but Joab reads this and he knows what David wants. 
Um, and, and all of these men, when, when they go to this fight, they know this is, this is not good strategy. This is not how you win uh, a, a siege. This, that's just not how that happens. This siege is probably going to last several months, maybe even a year. That's expected, and, and that's part of what, what the plan was. So when they go near, they go near enough to kind of entice the enemy to come out. And it says that Joab went where he knew there were valiant men, probably honorable men, men that were going to fight if, if, if something was said. Now, let's, let's be honest. We know that soldiers probably would have insulted each other, so the Israelites may have come close and insulted the, 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 the mothers of the soldiers or whatever. Anyway, they would have got them to come out, okay? And so the Ammonites come out, and they begin to fight. Well, the, the men of Israel, they're valiant warriors, so they begin to push the Ammonites closer and closer back to the walls. Well, as this happens, as they get very near the walls within range, most of the Israelites back away. Most of them receive the command to retreat, but Uriah is standing there by himself, and he is killed at that time. There are other soldiers lost, but Uriah is one of them. And so Joab prepares a messenger and, give, and prepares this message. And in the message, he, he delivers the message, and, and he knows David's going to say, this was dumb, you shouldn't have done this, you shouldn't have fought this way. But he says, when the king gets angry, remind him, that his servant Uriah is dead as well. Now, Joab couldn't possibly have known everything that was going on, but he knew that David wanted Uriah dead, and so that's basically uh, where, where this comes down. And so uh, Joab follows this order, um, and he sends this messenger to David. Now, David, when he receives this message, we don't see him react in an angry way because the messenger doesn't stop talking until he also says that Uriah is dead. And so David is, is, he's so relieved that his sin has been covered, or at least it seems like it has, that he's going to get off from this scot-free, that he actually gets a little philosophical and says, the sword devours one and then the sword devours another. You know, get back in there, slugger, and keep fighting. Um, he just doesn't, he, he doesn't react the way that maybe a king should at a loss like this because he got what he wanted. At this point, if not maybe even before, David has become unrecognizable as the man that, that we have been studying. He does not seem like the young man that ran out and conquered Goliath in the name of the Lord. He does not look like the man that was so honorable in all of his dealings with Saul. He does not look like the same man. Sin transforms and disfigures us in a way that we would never expect. Now, when we watch the wicked do wicked things, we shouldn't be surprised. We may be saddened, but we shouldn't be surprised. But when it is the righteous that fall, it is always troubling and disturbing. And that's, you would describe David as righteous. So you may be asking, how is it possible for someone with the relationship with the Lord that David had, how is it possible for him to fall into this horrible situation? And it's going to be difficult for us to say everything that happened in David's life, the, the chinks in the armor, the, the lapses in not just judgment, but in spiritual disciplines and maturity that would have made that happen. Um, but one thing that I will say with absolute certainty is that any of us could find ourselves in that very same situation. Um, we have to stay connected to God's Word. Um, and we have to understand the, the depth of our need to stay connected to God's word. David was a man who was literally inspired by God to write scriptures. 
and in the moment of temptation, he forgot the word of God. Be close enough to God and close enough to his word that it is on every thought, that, that it is in some way shaping every word and every action. And you may not be in the situation that David's in. But the Holy Spirit had literally moved David by this point for sure to write scripture. And yet he found himself in this place. This is, this is difficult. We're also told in the New Testament that we are to pray without ceasing. I have found that it is difficult, not impossible, but difficult to sin while at the same time praying. If we get caught up in worry, we may turn worry into prayer and be in that gray area for a little while, but it is difficult to pray and sin at the same time. That is not something that is common. Everything that we do, every decision from the moment we wake up to the moment we lay our heads down at night, we need to be in prayer. We need to be connected to the Lord. We need that. And it also may sound like an oversimplification, but don't forget God. Don't forget Him. That's a very common command in the Bible, and I think that's what gets us a lot of times. We know the Word. We have a prayer life, but in the moment of temptation, we forget God is there. And when we forget God is there, we act at our own. We act on our own. At any stage during this whole disaster, if God or if David had remembered God, it could have been different. It could have been different. We could have had a different story. But he didn't remember God, and because of that, he was sinful. And, and I'll tell you, we don't want to think about God in the midst of our sin, but that's the only thing that's going to save us from a downward spiral is to begin to think about God. So love the Word, live in prayer, remember God, and you may avoid the fallings of David, what David did. So the last two verses... They give us some hope, but it is definitely foreshadowing. Um, but let me give you maybe a little bit of cultural history. So when Bathsheba learned about the death of Uriah, she very predictably went into mourning. Um, there's no evidence that she knew the steps that David took to ensure that his sin and, and, and um, the, the things that they had done would be covered. There's no evidence that she knows that, that Uriah was ordered to be killed. Um, and so she goes into this mourning, in, in this period of mourning, it's, it's, it's part of... Um, what, what she would what would have been expected of her is to go into that time of mourning. Um, but then after the, her time of mourning, David actually brings her into his household, makes her his wife, and, and ultimately they have a child. So to the eyes of the uninformed observer, David was seemingly performing a very selfless act by marrying Bathsheba. If you remember to the story of Ruth, uh, what we learned is that a woman alone in the land, um, if she had no husband, had no son, had no way for her line to be carried on, she was in a very dangerous situation. And if you remember in that story, Boaz married Naomi, and, uh, or married Ruth, and, and, and that created a line um, that ultimately leads to David. Well, David seemingly takes on the role of kinsman redeemer. Let me tell you why that's important, because Uriah's last name was the Hittite. He was a foreigner. He was not an Israelite, so his position in the land was, was tenuous at best. It was completely based on the favor of the king, but his wife was now completely without any kind of protection. And so David seemingly steps in, takes on the role of kinsman redeemer, and, and, and then fulfills that in, in, a, in, a, in a beautiful and graceful way. That's what it seems like. That's what it looks like from the outside. 
but at least one person knew that that's not what was going on. God knew. It says the thing displeased the Lord. Now, I have said this also time and time again. The Bible understates things. There's no exaggerations in Scripture, none at all. An exaggeration is a lie, right? If the fish you caught was this big, when you say it's this big, that's a lie. That's, that's not an exaggeration, that's a lie. We need to get right with that. And so, the thing displeased the Lord, that's an understatement. Judgment is coming. God will have His say about this situation. And, and, and when we get to the end and we see the name of the Lord again, it's like, oh, we forgot God. Why didn't God stop Him? Why didn't God say something? Well, God's there, and God is going to say something. God was not fooled. In the eyes of the Lord, no sin is unseen and no sin is ignored. All right. So much like David, um, we may find ourselves in a terrible situation like this, a situation of our doing, a situation of our um, causing. The details are going to be different, but the end result's going to be the same. We find ourselves um, in sin. We find ourselves at, in, in trouble. Um, and, and, and the reality is it's all going to begin the same way. It's going to begin with some thought that we should have taken captive and gotten rid of, but instead we let it stay. We know that one sin leads to another. Look at, look at David, a sin of lust. Then there was the, 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 the sin of adultery. And then he started trying to lie his way out of it through deceptive means. And ultimately it went to corruption and murder. He thought he was probably, you know, scot-free. When, once he had married Bathsheba, she had come into his household, had had the child, he probably thought he was good to go, that nobody would ever know what had been done in secret. That's not the case. But I tell you, sin compounds upon itself. It has to. If you were ever a kid and you got in trouble at school and you tried to lie about it at home, you realize it's going to compound because you tell a lie, you're going to have to tell another lie to cover that lie. You're going to have to keep lying until you can't even keep track of them yourself. That, that hap has happened to many and many a young boy for sure. I don't know about girls, but it's happened to many a young boy. We try to cover it up, and so we keep trying to hide our sin over and over and over again. It never, ever works. Well, David was just like that little boy. He, he did a thing that he was ashamed of, that he knew was wrong, that he shouldn't have done, and so then he tried to cover it up. We as, as adult, mature followers of, Christ, of, of Christ, we may do the same thing. You've got to get off the bus. It's going to destruction. You've got to get off. You've got to step off. But if we are in any part of this story, this tragedy this morning, I do have good news. Jesus Christ, our true King, our true Savior, came to this earth and he paid a price for sin. The sin that we have lived, the sin that we have committed, the sin that we have covered up and buried, the sin that we have tried to hide, Jesus publicly paid the price for that sin. We know this. And so if we are not a Christian this morning and we are here, I tell you that there is grace, there is mercy, there is forgiveness. We turn to Jesus, he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So we repent from our sins, we believe in Jesus Christ and we are saved. We are a new creature, the old things are passed away. If you are a believer and you find yourself in a pattern of sin like this, well, we're like the person that, that a firefighter risks their life. They run into the, to the, to the fire and, the, and, the, and they pull the person out 
and then the person is saved, but there's belongings, there's an old life in that house that they're trying to save, so they run back in, and, and they're consumed by the flames once again. We are like that person. If we are a believer and we are still ensnared in sin, yes, we can still be saved. The gifts of God are eternal. He's not going to revoke your salvation, but you can still be burned by sin. We have to stop. We have to let go of the old life. Let go of the old ways. Abandon that and follow with all of our heart. Follow Jesus Christ. You know, I've said it before, and I will definitely say it again. I think I've said it in this sermon. Um, but any Christian is capable of any sin given the right circumstances. You might say, well, I would never do this. Don't be so proud. Be humble. Realize we're we in danger of doing any of these things. Be committed to the Lord. Be committed to His Word. Stay prayed up. Be prepared and do not forget God. Sin begins at consideration, but no matter where we are in this process, the best answer is just to stop. David could have stopped at any number of these phases in this sin, and it would have been better. It would have been more honorable, but he didn't. He didn't choose to stop. He chose to keep going. And the sad truth is that many of us at some point in our life, we'll enter into a cycle of sin and we will not choose to stop either until we hit some rock bottom. Realize, God will be waiting for us there. But He is also there before we hit rock bottom. Choose to stop now. If you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, turn to Him and He will give you strength to stop. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, turn to Him. He will give you the strength to stop. But that is what we have to do. He's called us not to live a sinful life, not to live our best life, but to live a holy life. Turn away from sin. Turn to Jesus. Let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time to gather together. We thank you for your word. And even in a very, very difficult story, even in a passage that, that covers the fall of a man that if we didn't know the story, it would shock us beyond belief. But it reminds us that we are to be humble, that we must stay connected to you at all times, that we should never let our guard down. We know that sin crouches at the door. Its desire is to rule over us, but we must master it. And we cannot master it on our own, but you have given us the power to master it with the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. So let us rise above sin. There is a whole world out there watching to see if there is some difference between us and them. Let our lives be lives of holiness, of purity, of simplicity, of humility. Let our lives be different from that of the world. Let us stand out in stark contrast. We know, Lord, that some will hate us. We know that others will question us. But there are a few, the few that you have prepared, a few that will see that and understand that there is true power in your word. There is true power in the gospel. Let us live for that cause. That is the cause that your son died for. Let us live for it. Let us proclaim the gospel for those who might listen. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.